Being a chef means keeping your cool in the kitchen. And with Resi Priority Notify and Global Dining Access through my Amex Platinum card, right this way, it's nice to try someone else's food for a change. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was good! But be careful. Because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Lessons from the world's top professors. Anytime, anyplace. World history examined and science explained. This is One Day University. Welcome. Welcome back to the untold history of sports in America. I'm your host, Mike Coscarelli. It's good to see you. Last time, we discussed the origins of sport and its place as pseudo-religion in England. On this episode, sports get started in America. Today, we're going to take a look at the early days of athletic competition in the colonies with an emphasis on the differences between sports in the North and the South. You'll get some insight into which colony may have been the most competitive and, of course, where our societal obsession for sports comes from. Shocker! It involves the military. I also want to make note that uh, if you're squeamish about animal rights, well, buckle up. With all that in mind, here's Matt. Let's begin in New England, and this will be the shorter of our two conversations today, as there actually was not a very robust sports culture up in New England, which is obviously very different than New England today. I mean, Red Sox fans, for the record, they are crazy. But the origins of something called New England, those origins date back to 1620 with the arrival of those Puritan dissidents that we talked about last time, the Puritans who were fleeing sinful Europe. As you know, the, the Puritans, they rejected violent blood sports while they were in England and their suspicions and distaste of these activities, they were transferred to Puritan New England. And since the Puritans created New England and made the laws in New England, most of the English sports and the games that we talked about last time, they were explicitly prohibited. Playing those sports was illegal. Um, cards and dice and other games of chance, they were forbidden. That The Puritans believed that these games led to lying and cheating. Those animal blood sports we talked about last time, those were banned. But I want to be clear about something. Animal blood sports were not banned because Puritans cared for the welfare of animals. That idea about caring about animals, that is a very modern idea. 
the Puritans, they detested blood sports because of how, of how excited these events made the spectators. You know, blood sports fueled passions. They led to drinking and gambling and cursing. And, and these things were prohibited and frowned upon up in Puritan land. Okay, so what's left, you may be asking. Well, in place of these blood sports and gambling sports, the Puritan authorities emphasized what they called lawful sport. Lawful sports were activities that were to refresh the participants so they could become better worshipers, better workers. So what were lawful sports? Well, Puritan authorities specifically endorsed the following activities. Walking, or maybe I should say hiking. You know, walking was encouraged as it thrust one across God's green earth and it caused that person to contemplate the splendors of the Almighty. Hunting and, and fishing, they were okay because they refreshed the body and they provided food for sustenance. In the 1600s, when one described himself as a sportsman, and that's what it meant. You were a hunter or a fisherman, and that designation of sportsman has actually stuck around. And then the Puritans, they emphasized a militaristic sport. In Puritan New England, colonial law required men between the ages of 16 and 60, every man between 16 and 60, they were required to meet for regular military training, what were called training days. And on these training days, Puritan troops, they competed in wrestling, foot races, horse riding, musket shooting contests. These were athletic competitions that helped defend New England, this religious experiment in North America. So this is the second time I've talked about sport and militarism in our course. So, so let me just pause and really emphasize something here. Let's talk very big picture for a minute. Where does our fascination with sport come from? You know, why do we celebrate and valorize great athletes the way we do? What's that all about? Well, I think that at its root, it's because of these links between sport and militarism. As long as there have been communities and societies, these communities and societies have relied on soldiers to protect them. Uh, ancient Greece, for example, it was a civilization marked by constant war between city-states, you know, Athens and Sparta, for example. And Greek culture demanded that all male citizens, they take turns defending their city-state on the battlefield. And these soldiers, these citizen soldiers, were expected to be athletically active in order to be effective soldiers, physically fit soldiers. And so people who study the origins of body culture, they tell us that, you know, it, it's from Greece that we get the statuesque vision of the ideal male body. The muscular male body was considered ideal because it was the soldier's body, you know, shaped by the rigors of combat, always ready to take up the sword and defend the city-state. Well, it's the exact same thing in England, and now the same thing here in America. The man who can throw a rock the furthest, or run the fastest, or emerge victorious in a boxing match, that man is celebrated because he is proving his skill as a soldier, his, his worth as a defender of the community. Keep that big general idea in mind as we progress in this course.
But let me finish up with the Puritans. In New England, here's the big idea with Puritan sport. When sport had a utility, a greater purpose, it was allowed. You know, if it furthered colonial defense or if it was a way to gather food, it was acceptable. Likewise, if the activity was seen as a way to glorify God or or refresh the body for work, then and only then were sports socially acceptable. To put this idea one more way, I'm going to put it in the form of a negative. No beer pong. The evidence strongly suggests that the Puritans would have been anti-beer pong. All right, that was my attempt at being funny. That's, that's another theme in our course, me trying to be funny. All right, now let's turn to the South. Uh, which in many ways had a sporting culture that was the direct opposite of what it looked like up in New England. In direct contrast to the Puritans up north, Southerners did not need an excuse to participate in, watch, or wager on sports. The, The colonists in the early American South, they were sport and competition crazy, which makes them like so many Americans today. The Southern Colonial Project began in earnest in 1607 with the founding of Jamestown. This was in the colony of Virginia. And I'm going to use Virginia as our example. And the culture of Virginia was much different than in New England. And and attitudes about sports reflect this. Sports, competitive sports, were wildly popular in the Southern colonies for a few reasons. First of all, in Virginia... Sport did not have to contend with a powerful Puritan religious culture. Uh, The the Southern colonies, they were lorded over by the Church of England. And this is a church that, as we discussed last time, was much more tolerant of sport. Its leaders believed that there was a social utility to sport. They they thought there's a real value in cutting loose every once in a while. A second reason. These southern colonies were places where young single men came to strike it rich. The first Europeans who came to Virginia, they came looking for gold. Later, they found what they called brown gold, tobacco. And Virginia became known very quickly as a place where one went to become wealthy through tobacco production. So the sporting and the gambling culture that developed there, it should really come as no surprise. Virginia was competitive. Its colonists were there to make money any way they could. And so just as they were gambling on tobacco every day, they would gather in taverns and they would gamble. They would play cards, roll dice, board games of chance. By contrast, New England, up in New England, that's where families went to settle. Colonial Virginia had much more of a frat house sports bar vibe. Third reason for the prominence of sports in Virginia, and I think this is an exceedingly interesting idea. In the southern colonies like Virginia, more and more, labor, that is work, labor became viewed as something that enslaved Africans did, that that black Africans did. By contrast, then, leisure and game playing, they became seen as something that Europeans, that that white people did. Let me slow down and say something more about this. 
The first African slaves arrived in Virginia in 1619, right? Brought there forcefully. And by the end of the 1600s, African slavery, it was the dominant labor system down in Virginia. Now, this transition to African slave labor, it had a million different ramifications for American culture and American history. But it absolutely had an effect on how Americans think about work and play, how we think about sports. How could white Virginians value and, and celebrate hard work like they did up in New England? How could they value and celebrate hard work once labor was associated with African slavery. They couldn't. So just as labor became seen as the, the burden of blackness, leisure was celebrated as one of the privileges of whiteness. White Virginians, they use sports and leisure as a sign of their free and privileged status. Just to play sports was to demonstrate your freedom and to publicly revel in that freedom. I think that's a really interesting idea. I hope I explained that well and that makes sense. I'm going to give you a couple examples of this in just a moment. And then finally, and this is somewhat related to that third point, within white Virginian society, sports were used by the wealthy landowners, a group known as the gentry. The gentry use sports to demonstrate their great wealth and to, and to separate themselves from poorer whites. In other words, the gentry, they use sports to mark their superior social status compared to other white people. After the break, the gentry use sports to distinguish themselves from the common folk with practices still used today? Hmm. Plus... Eye gouging takes the South by storm. Ugh. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. 
Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, the gentry. These guys were wealthy. They were the, the cock of the walk. You know, they, they had the best land and the most profitable plantations, and they wanted everyone else to know that they were better than others. And sports was one of the ways that they did this. Sports were what one 19th century social critic is going to later call conspicuous display. One engaged in sport, you know, either through competition or through wagering in order to make a claim that one had the time and the wealth with which to be leisurely. Here's how this worked. Wealthy Virginians, they created laws that made certain pastimes exclusively theirs. For example, only the gentry were allowed to participate in fox hunts. Though, and I actually love this fact, they had to import European red foxes to Virginia as the North American gray fox proved much too clever to capture. But think about that. You have to be of a certain social status just to hunt foxes, right? Sport as a social marker. Now, the gentry's favorite sport was horse racing, particularly what was known as quarter horse racing. The center of American quarter horse racing in the colonial era. This was on the Virginia-Maryland border, where the gentry, they bred tall, muscular horses with, with strong hindquarters. And these bigger horses, they were sprinters. They ran a quarter mile. Thus, they are known as quarter horses. The reason that the quarter mile became standard is that it was very hard to clear a swath of land larger than a quarter mile long. But the gentry, they they used horse racing to distinguish themselves from others, uh, from the commoners. And they used horse racing to demonstrate their masculinity to one another. First of all, only the wealthy owned horses. So just being able to race one's horse was itself a statement of great wealth. Horses were rare and expensive in early Virginia. In fact, horses were so rare and expensive that the punishment for stealing a horse in colonial Virginia was execution, the death penalty for horse thieves. At these races, the gentry, they would drink prodigious amounts of alcohol and they would wager small fortunes on the outcome. To win a wager is to instantly have one's own intelligence validated. But just to place a large bet, you know, to lay down a bunch of money and take a wild chance, this was seen as a mark of masculinity itself. And again, to compare this with New England, this is quite different from up north. In New England, generally speaking, manhood was demonstrated through sobriety, steadfastness, you know, hard work. But down in the South, it's, it's risk, it's daring, reckless abandon. These were the marks of a real man. You know, at these horse races, the gentry, they would segregate themselves. They would stand alone, you know, physically separate themselves from the commoners to make claims about their superior status. And this is a practice actually repeated today at places like the Kentucky Derby. You know, up high in the grandstands sit the wealthy in their suits and gowns and their massive hats. 
but down in the infield, it's just a bunch of regular people slurping Jim Beam and barfing all over each other. Anyway, I'm going to tell you more about horse racing next time. Uh, horse racing is the first really important sport in American history. So we're going to do more of that in just a bit. But it, let's continue our tour of the colonial South. I was talking about the gentry. Well, the, the, the gentry were not the only Southerners obsessed with sports. The common people of the Southern colonies loved blood sports, having imported many of their favorite from England. They loved cockfighting. Uh, another favorite was bull and bear fights. And it's, it's just like it sounds. You capture a black bear, you chain it up, you sick a bull on it. And of course, everyone wagers on the outcome. You know, if you love animals and don't like to see them suffer, you would not have liked the world in the 16 and 1700s. I should also mention this. There's a theory. It's thought that from these battles between bulls and bears, that we get the oppositional terms for the stock market, bull and bear markets. Virginians also had a special love of what they called gander pulling. And gander pulling, I am afraid, is exactly what it sounds like. A goose would be tied by its feet and suspended up high by a rope, and its head would be greased so it would be difficult to clutch and grasp. Men would throw in a quarter or a half dollar or maybe a small bundle of tobacco. Then they'd get on horseback and they would ride under the poor dangling bird and reach up and try to rip off its head, the greased neck making this quite difficult. The man who eventually ripped the gander's head from its body won the money and got to keep the decapitated bird for dinner. Ah, sports. All right, I want to tell you about one more sport in the colonial South. This is a combat sport that had many names. Uh, some people called it backwoods brawling. Some called it rough and tumble fighting. And some just called it gouging. And this is insane. To explain what this was, let me quote from a letter from an English minister who spent some time, I think it was in the 1760s. He was traveling in, in the Virginia and the Carolina backcountry, you know, up in the Western Hills, the, the, the Appalachians. And here he is giving some advice about fighting. I would advise you when you do fight not to act like tigers and bears as those Virginians do biting one another's lips and nose off and gouging one another, that is thrusting out one another's eyes and kicking another on the cods to the great damage of many a poor woman. All right, so here is evidence in the form of a letter that men in the Virginia backcountry, they were engaging in some sort of animalistic fighting practice in which they kicked their opponent's testicles their cods, and they attempted to bite off noses and gouge out eyes. What is going on here? Well, historians who study this region, they say that the southern backcountry, it was marked with a, a preoccupation with honor. Honor. The people of this area who settled in log cabins and they farmed not terribly fertile land, they had very little. 
So they fiercely defended the one thing that they did have, their honor. So a gouging contest, it, it might occur because one man physically assaulted another man or because a, a piece of property was stolen or damaged, or, or maybe just for some verbal slight, like calling a man a buckskin, which was to accuse him of being so poor that he had to wear animal skins for clothing. Take it from me, don't ever call another man a buckskin. Well, when any of these things occurred, a man's honor, it had been attacked. And so two men, they would stand face to face, a crowd would form around them, and they would fight. And in the backcountry, all fighting techniques were allowed. It was, as the saying goes, no holds barred. So on the one hand, these were savage battles for honor. But let me dig a little deeper here and relate this to something I was just talking about. To go back to what I said about race a few moments ago, to go back to our discussion of sports as a sign of leisure and whiteness, we might also say that these fights were displays of freedom, white freedom. Verbal boasts and physical attacks at the slightest affront These were not things that the enslaved black population in the South could do. The white backwoodsman, no matter how poor he was, he could fight at the slightest affront. The enslaved black man could not. This is not to say that the enslaved never resisted and never fought back. On occasion, they did. If you've ever read the narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass, it's a great autobiography, You may remember the scene where Frederick Douglass, he uses his fists to subdue his sadistic white owner. He writes that this was the moment when he attained full manhood. But that's exactly my point. I mean, again, by custom, the white backwoodsman could fight in response to the slightest insult. By law, the enslaved black man could not, no matter what was done to him. To fight and defend your honor even at the slightest slight. This was to be free. Though I suppose how free one was not to fight, well, that's an interesting question. As for the fights themselves, and this is the crazy part, the goal in these battles was the maximum disfigurement of your opponent. Biting off another man's lip, that was allowed. Chomping off his nose, go for it. The violent removal of a testicle, very effective, I am told. But it was the gouging out of an opponent's eye that was the most celebrated feat in these battles. Being able to quickly remove another man's eyeball was considered the greatest skill that a backcountry fighter could possess. The best gougers, as they were called, They grew and they filed and they oiled their fingernails. So they were like small, slick, sharp shovels that could quickly slice into the eye socket and detach the eyeball from the back of the head. The loser in these gouging battles was permanently maimed or disfigured. The winner might be as well, but he had defended his honor and he could crow like a rooster that he had done so. You know, fights and eye gouging were so common in the North Carolina backwoods that in 1746, the North Carolina colonial legislature, they passed a law 
They made it a felony to cut out the tongue or pull out the eye of the king's people. Five years later, they passed another law, making it illegal to bite off another man's nose. I don't know. It seems to me a man should be at liberty to bite off another man's nose, but uh, whatever. I, I suppose that's a good rule. Okay, I think it's summary time. Here's today's takeaway. And, and let me point to what I'm going to talk about next time. I've been arguing that a comparison of the different sporting cultures in colonial America, it can tell us something important about the values of those early American colonists and, and the different values of the colonists up in New England and down in Virginia. We have these two different ideas about sports in early America. In New England, they're they're strict and they're suspicious about sport. They see most sports as frivolous, unwholesome, and ungodly. They have a very narrow definition of what a legitimate or lawful sport is. But down in the colonial South, like in Virginia, it's the exact opposite. There they celebrate risk-taking and physical competition, masculine athleticism, you know, honor, and just fighting at the drop of a hat. Well, these two opposing ideas about sports, they're going to come together. They're, they're going to be reconciled in the middle of the 19th century due to a brand new theory about sport. And this may be the most important theoretical leap ever made in America with regard to sports. And we will discuss that idea and other modern ideas about sports next time. Well, that's all for now. Next time on the Untold History of Sports in America, presented by One Day University, sports get modern in the 1800s. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was good! But be careful. Because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really needs your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every family has an origin story. One passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.